Good afternoon, church. Um, it's a joy, as always, to gather with you as the people of God, um, as God's covenant people. Um, I did want to let you know, if you're visiting and you don't have an Amos journal, we have some over here at the table. They're just uh, little scripture journals that have a blank page and then the scripture on one side, so you can kind of take notes. Feel free to grab one of those. You can even get up right now and grab it if you want, um, if that's not too embarrassing for you. If not, you can get it after the service. So um, I did want to also give you a quick update about the Back to School uh, Bible Conference uh, that First Missionary Baptist Church here in Decatur put on. I mentioned that, I think, last week and maybe the week before. Uh, they did it virtually this year, and what it is is just a, a three-night conference geared towards parents and families primarily. Last year, they were able to have like a program for the kids. This year, with just virtual, um, they just had a program for the parents. And so I had the opportunity to preach one of the sermons one of the nights. And want to let you know, if you um, are a parent, uh, that you can find those. I shared that on our Facebook page. We shared that, I think, yesterday. Uh, so you can go find that link to all three nights. I thought it was very just helpful, biblical, Christ-centered, um, just some great, just raising kids in a crazy time in our world right now. Um, and so I wanted to just, again, let you know about that. And it was just something that they were grateful that we were able to partner with uh, some financially and also just putting some resources towards that. Um, so that was just an encouragement. Um, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to be able to preach. Um, today we're back in Amos, continuing our series. We're going to be, as you heard read, in chapter 2 and finishing uh, up chapter 2 all the way through verse 16. Uh, anytime you're preparing a sermon, a lot of times the Spirit will bring to mind maybe an illustration that you can use um, to just help with your sermon and with the context. Um, Jesus did it a lot with parables, right? He shared a lot of stories, and so a lot of times the Spirit will bring that to mind. And so for this sermon, I was like, man, an illustration about not liking having your faults pointed out would be perfect to just launch this sermon. And so I was like, man, well, marriage, right? This is perfect. I'm married, and so we can talk about uh, having your faults pointed out, right? And so I didn't want to use an example that made my wife look bad. So I was like, well, and I'd never point out her flaws, so obviously there wasn't one. Um, that was a joke. But anyways, um, so I go to her, and I've been meaning to ask her, and literally last night, I'm doing a little bit more work on the sermon. I was like, hey, can you think of a time just recently where you've like pointed out something I did wrong or something that you disagreed with, and I responded very poorly, and she was just sitting there, she was trying to think of something, and she's like, man, I don't, I don't know, and I'm not making this up. Literally, she was like, but, but I can tell you something I've been meaning to tell you you've done wrong. And I was like, that's not the conversation I was wanting to have. Um, I wasn't prepared for that. And I'm literally like, leave, go back to prep this sermon, and I'm just upset. I'm like frustrated. So it proved my point. I didn't like being told. Apparently, sometimes I, what did she say? Uh, I talk about myself too much sometimes when she wants to hear about other people's lives. <laughs> So I was like, all right, cool, point taken. So if I go out to eat with you tonight and I talk about myself, just cut me off and be like, hey, your wife wants to hear about my life, not yours. She knows about that enough. But anyways, all that to say, nobody likes to have their flaws pointed out, right? Uh, the same goes for the nation of Israel that we're going to find in our text today. And so Amos, as a prophet, is actually a genius in the way he begins to address Israel. If you were with us last week, uh, we saw all these nations surrounding Israel being judged. Um, and the way he does this, Amos uses a common method employed by the prophets. They would, they would make their case in a manner that the offending party would first agree with them about the issue, and then they would personalize it for that person. If you remember, the prophet Nathan did that with David when he was caught in Bathsheba, and he told the story of these sheep, and then he said, you are the man at the end. And so David was just caught. He had to admit that he was guilty. 
And so this is what Amos is doing. And remember, this is one whole prophecy and narrative. And so Amos is essentially bringing the bullseye into Israel where they cannot deny that they are guilty before the God of injustice that they're guilty before God of their own injustice and sin. And so the Bible Project in their video, they illustrate it this way. If you can show that slide, they kind of show how it's a target. And all these nations that we saw last week, Tyre, Damascus, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Judah, and Gaza, all these nations surrounding Israel were being judged, and he's bringing the target into Israel because that's the primary receiver of this book. See, as Israel heard all these judgments cast against these other nations, they would have been wholeheartedly agreeing with Amos. Like, yes, they are evil. Get them. Destroy them. Not only that, they would have assumed that God was going to use them to be the ones to judge the other nations. Remember, they were full of military might and power and God. They would have been like, yes, we can't wait. When is that going to happen? Give us the date. Let's put it in our calendars, and we're going to destroy all these other nations. But here's the thing. For God's own covenant people, they don't get a pass when it comes to their sin and injustice. And I would even argue God's covenant people bear more responsibility because they have experienced the revelation and goodness of a God who loves them. See, God cares too much about his covenant people and his own name that he will not allow them to continue in rampant idolatry, injustice, and sin. And so throughout the most of the rest of the book of the prophet Amos, God is going to be dealing with the sins of Israel. And he calls them out on it. Right away in verse 6 of our text, we see Amos call out Israel's sin. That's the first thing we're looking at today is Israel's sin. This is, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Now, he introduces this punishment the same way as he did all the other nations. This idiom for three transgressions or for four just means that they have filled their cup up of sin and that time is up and God is going to judge them. Um, we're not going to spend forever rehashing about God's sovereignty. We've looked at that the last couple weeks, but God is sovereign and just. He knows how he set humanity up to flourish with each other and with God and with the world around them. And so when people, especially people that bear the covenant name of Yahweh, when those people commit injustice, he shows up and he deals with it. The judgment on Israel, if you remember last week, we, we covered, I think, seven different ones. And the one for Israel is much longer than any of the other judgments we looked at last week. Amos makes sure that Israel and anybody who would read this prophecy know that just because you say you believe in God and claim to be one of his people doesn't mean that you actually are. That it doesn't mean that you actually have a relationship with God just because it's in your bloodline or just because your parents did something. I mean, this is a warning to us who live in a cultural context where it's still actually culturally advantageous to be a Christian, or at least to carry that label. It's why you see it still put on political ads. If you got a mailer recently, I got one recently, and it let me know where this person running for my district was a member at their church. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to be a member of a church. Many of you here are members, and we value membership here. What I'm saying is just because you call yourself a Christian, just because you claim to be a Christian does not make it so. And the way we live our lives and the way we respond when injustice takes place around us reflects more about what we believe about God than we often think. And so let's just quickly look at the things that Israel specifically is indicted for. If we keep reading verse 6, we see the first thing, which is a perversion of right and wrong. It says in verse Amos 2.6, they sell the righteous for silver. The people of Israel were calling those who were innocent guilty. 
and selling them in some manner. Now, we don't know. This could have been actual selling into slavery, like we saw some nations were doing last week. Uh, It could have been bribing judges to make faulty accusations and judgments against innocent people. Either way, what we do know is that the prophet Amos calls these people righteous. And so they were going against what God had called them to be, which is a people of truth and justice. What we speak about matters. Truth matters. Isaiah 5.20 tells us that, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We see this even in our own culture today. The next thing we see them being judged for is injustice in the public sphere. We go on to read in verse 6, it says, And the needy for a pair of sandals. Again, we don't know exactly what's going on, but it seems like the needy are being sold into slavery over something as minuscule as a pair of sandals, or at least imprisoned or some form of punishment. And this goes directly against God's command in Leviticus 25. God had told the people of Israel, if someone falls into debt, do not treat them as a slave because they had just come out of Egypt. And he says, you know what it's like to be treated as a slave. Don't treat them as a slave. Yes, they can work to pay off what their debt is, but you treat them as an employee honorably. And then when you hit the year of Jubilee, it's over. They're no more in debt and you free them up and their family. Israel had long forgotten God's commands regarding this, and injustice was running rampant in the streets. The next thing we see is in verse 7. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. We see them being indicted for both active and passive oppression of the poor. So we see an active trampling and oppression of the poor, trampling the head of the poor to the dust of the earth, and then we see both in a passive, just turning aside the way of the afflicted. That's probably the one we need to be warned of more in our day, right? I'm reminded of the story of the Good Samaritan when all the religious just passed by and simply ignored the man who needed help. They weren't the ones who robbed the man and beat him, but they ignored the needy around them. See, even if no one else saw, we know that God sees the poor and the needy. He hears the cries of the poor and those taken advantage of. Psalm 72 says he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Look at the way God views the poor and needy. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious, precious is their blood in his sight. Even if the entire world would demean And forget the poor and needy among us. God says they are precious in my sight. And then continuing in verse 7, Israel is indicted and charged with rampant sexual immorality. It says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Now scholars would differ um, on if this was illicit consensual sex or even worse, this could be servant girls who were being taken advantage of and sexually assaulted We don't know exactly what's going on, but what we do know is that it's a big deal to God because God says that this profanes his name, his holy name. By their sexual impurity and pursuit of pleasure at any cost, they are profaning his name. What we do with sex matters. It's not just kind of some arbitrary thing. It actually has to do with the glory of God. It says something about what we believe about God and his way. And they were taking sex, which is a good gift in its right context, and they were abusing and misusing it for their own pleasure and purposes. They were using it in whatever way they wanted to, as long as it made them happy. And in doing so, they were not only profaning each other, they were profaning the name of God. 
And again, this is a timely word to us in a culture that prides itself on sexual freedom and, and constantly kind of redefines what is permissible. And it's not just out there in the world, right? It's easy for the church to be like, yes, they, there's a problem out there, and let's protect ourselves from those big, bad, evil people trying to redefine what we believe about sex. Like pornography, sexual abuse of women, it takes place within the walls of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And we have to talk about it, not because we want to heap down shame and guilt, but because sin flourishes in the dark, and so we want to shine the light of Jesus and the good news of the gospel on sin so that we can be redeemed. Israel was dealing with this in their day. The next thing in verse 8, they were again being judged for, was rampant injustice and oppression. And this time it's even worse, though, because Amos points out that it's not just injustice and oppression. It's actually taking place in the houses of God, places that were supposed to be sacred, safe spots where you meet with God and commune with God. Verse 8 says, they lay themselves down beside every altar, so rampant every altar, on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, what do we mean by these garments taken in pledge? Why was, pledge? Why was this a big deal? So we got to look a little further back in the scriptures so you get the context and see what's going on. Exodus 22, this was when they were agreeing to the covenant terms, and this was their command. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, so a pledge was like interest, basically. I need uh, to borrow some money, and so collateral, right? What we would call collateral. Uh, maybe you put up your car note for collateral, something like that. You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now, if I was somebody who was giving loans, it would be more work for me to go get the garments back to them every night. I don't know how that worked, if they had like a garment route. Um, but whatever it was, there was this command here to protect the poor and the vulnerable among them, that they would not be sleeping overnight without anything to cover themselves up with. And God says, if they cry out to me, because you're not, guess what, I'm going to hear, even if you don't because I'm compassionate. In Deuteronomy 20, 20, chapter 24, verse 17, it says, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. So for widows, they weren't even allowed to take that garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. I mean, God's constantly reminding them of where they came from because that's why they're oppressing. They've forgotten where they themselves came from. And so this perversion of justice was not only happening, it was rampant. It was happening on every altar, Places that were supposed to be sacred. And the oppression taking place was using religion to cover the oppression, which made this even doubly heinous and wicked. He makes this point even more clear. When you see they were taking wine, which most likely equaled sustenance for the poor and needy, something that they could sell. And so they were continuing to take it as interest against these people, and they were just using it to party in the house of God and drink it. It was just something that they would uh, use for luxury when it was sustenance for other people. And again, they've taken a good gift and perverted its use in the house of God. And that's the, that's the end of our reasons that God gives for his punishment. So kind of the overarching accusation against the people of Israel is injustice within the public or social sphere. And God says it's not okay. And here's the thing, this was happening in the walls of Israel. You remember last week we saw other nations being judged for the way they treated other nations and people outside their borders. This is so bad that it's taking place even among their own people in the social fear. And God says, hey, you can't call yourself God's covenant people and not act like it. Like the New Testament equivalent, you can't say you love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother or sister who you look in their eyes and see them. 
And the irony is, is we can do the same thing. I mean, we, we can look at the people of Israel. We can look at the other nations and say, how could they do that? How could they allow that to happen? I would never do that. And we might ignore the oppression and the injustices taking place in our own society, our day, right? Things like ridiculous interest rates on loans or, or maybe giving higher interest rates to people based on their ethnicity or how much they need the loan. We could talk about disproportionate prison sentences based on who the offender was and where he came from and his ethnicity or maybe his class. Things like refusing certain housing or not giving out loans to live in certain neighborhoods because of the color of one's skin. We've actually seen that right here in our own city in the last few weeks, that that was taking place here in the city of Decatur. We see things like rampant child trafficking and sexual abuse or the abuse of power to coerce others into sex. In many communities, we see injustice in our school systems where poor communities receive less resources and equipping, and it has this ongoing cyclical effect. And we could talk for days about stuff like this, right? Taking place in our own nation. And the thing is, it's not okay. And as God's people, like we're called to, and I know we can't do everything, we can't all be engaged in every issue, but as we have the ability, we're called to speak out and work for just laws, to protect the marginalized, the oppressed, and the poor among us. That's what God's people do. And I'll get to the reason and the motivation for that in a minute. But we engage, and here's the thing that we have to be concerned with. It's not just out there. It's within the walls of our churches. The American church is a place that is ripe for the abuse of power and leadership, maybe creating this toxic, domineering culture, And I believe in authority, like that's a God-given gift. We're going to see that in just a second. But that's why we believe in plurality of leadership. Accountability matters. We can't just use power to get what we want. That's why we believe in the plurality of elders and believe that you as the congregation, as members, have not only the responsibility but the authority to hold each other and leaders accountable. With the poor, often, and I've heard this so many times, within the church, we can lead the way in thinking about poverty in very unhelpful ways. And even if we're not explicitly oppressing the poor, we can ignore those and go around those in our community who need our help because it would infringe on our comfort and our lives. And I don't mean just giving a handout. That's not necessarily the answer, right? Sometimes we give things away, yes, but I mean being actively involved in the lives of those who we would deem less fortunate. Often we assume the worst about the poor. I don't know how many times I've heard, well, it's their own fault. They got themselves in that mess. They can get themselves out. Thank God God doesn't treat us that way because none of us could get ourselves out of our messes. He crawls down with us and he redeems us holistically. He doesn't just throw money at the problem, right? Sometimes money's needed, but we're not just talking about money. We're talking about holistically, body, mind, heart, and soul, giving them the good news of Jesus and because that's what Jesus did for us. The church has also been so complicit in issues of injustice when it comes to things like racism or the treatment of women. And I'm not saying the church hasn't done some amazing things. Like God has used the church as broken as she is. So you guys know that I love the church. I believe that the church is God's means of restoration in the world. But we have to also be honest where we've missed it. The church has also like, been dangerously entangled in political parties seeking to gain power and control at any cost. And the gospel is a political thing. Like we're engaged in politics, but we're not married to any single political party. Because when that happens, here's what we do. And this is rampant. We demean others, either people or groups of people based on their political beliefs. And I'm sorry, that's not Christian in any way. 
And I get the tendency to want to do that because we just want to win, but it's not worth it. The way we engage matters, and unity as the church matters. And just like Israel was not immune to being judged as God's covenant people, neither are we as the church. And there is a stark warning in Revelation that God can remove the candlestick from us. God does not need New Eden Church. He does not need any of us to advance his kingdom. But we want to be used by him. We want to be involved. And so we follow him. It's not just what we profess with our lips and what covenant of faith we've signed or what you know, altar we walked, aisle we walked down when we were a kid or what building we find ourselves in on Sundays, maybe what radio station we listen to in the car. Those can all be amazing things. But the reality is the way we live in the public sphere matters. And again, it's not about getting it perfect. It's about walking in humility, and we're going to see that in a minute. See, this is actually, and this can be painful for us, like as I was studying this text, like I was smacked, like I said, like I, nobody likes to be told they're wrong, right? It can be painful, but it's God's grace to us to point out areas where we've missed it. That's how he sanctifies us. He deals with Israel's sin. He deals with our sin. And the next thing we see that I love is God reminds Israel where they came from. He reminds them of their start. See, Israel assumed that they had all their wealth and military might because they had earned it. We, we, we got ourselves here. See, the root sin behind all of this injustice and oppression was pride and arrogance. They thought that they had become their own king. They were in charge, and so they were sitting on the throne, and they could do whatever they wanted to do, and that their earthly success was evidence, that they must be doing something right. I hear that sometimes, right? Well, they must be doing something right. And from an earthly perspective, great. But in verses 9 through 11, God says four times that it was he who did all the work of making them a great nation, that it was not their own doing. He says, I did this. It was me. It was me who did this. And he ends all of that. We're not going to read all of it. But in verse 11, he asked this rhetorical question, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? And there was nobody among them who could say, no, it was us. This is masterful on the part of the prophet Amos to bring them to a point where they had to admit their own pride, their own arrogance, and he's getting now to the root of why the oppression was taking place. Because we can get laws on the books and we can try to fix all these things and try to make justice fall in the streets. The reality is there is pride and arrogance in the heart of the human soul and there's something deeper that has to be dealt with. And I'm not saying we don't do both. It's a both and, not an either or. See, there was no way that they could take credit for where they were at. He takes them back to the beginning, back when they were enslaved in Egypt, when God brought them up out of that and freed them from the hands of Pharaoh and gave them a place to call home. This is why it was so offensive that they would oppress and turn aside the afflicted and pervert the way of justice because they knew what being oppressed was like. They knew what it was to be utterly dependent on something outside of themselves to rescue them. Israel was not chosen because they were some great nation who figured it out. God said, I chose you because you were the least of the nations. And that was where my glory was going to get maximum, like be seen most maximally. That's not even a word, but whatever. That's why this covenant God made is amazing. Because it wasn't about Israel. It was about God and his glory. And here's the thing. For us new covenant people of God, it's the same thing. When I think of the church today, and, and I see it, and I'll find myself getting caught up in this, the arrogance with which some of us carry ourselves, like I'm brought back to this. Like when you think about Christianity at its core and the message that it brings, it takes us admitting that we are absolutely helpless. Like if we remember where we came from, we should be the humblest people on the planet because it's not about us. We can't forget where we came from. 
We should be the most active speaking out for the needy because that's who we are. Christianity is not grasping for power and control, and we don't need some government or some president to protect it for us. Jesus is the Lion King, and he's going to do his work just fine. And the amazing thing is, is he does it through sufferers, lowly, humble people like you and me who are just willing to give up our lives to see the good news advanced in the communities with the people that know they need it the most. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners God also addresses Israel in verse 11, and he says, I gave you some gifts, the Nazarites and the prophets. Nazarites were given to Israel to be a tangible example of holiness, to remind Israel of God's provision in the wilderness. And prophets were given to the nation of Israel to constantly remind and point people back to truth. But Israel had silenced the prophets. They had made a mockery of the Nazarites. Later, we'll see that Amos himself actually experienced this personally. That they told Amos, go prophesy somewhere else. We don't want you here. Like, we don't want to hear this message. We don't like to be told, like I said earlier, when we're wrong. Like nobody likes to hear it. But what if we begin to see that as God's gift to us? That's what God says. I gave you these prophets. See, when sin and injustice are pointed out, it is God's grace. Like God knows what that leads to in the division and the hatred and the violence and the fighting. We saw that last week. And this wasn't the first time Israel had been warned. They continually ignored God's call for repentance and change and communion with him. And just as he did with all the surrounding nations, God will bring about justice and judgment. That's what we see in verse 13. Behold, I'll press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. We won't read all the verses, but he gives this incredible imagery of destruction and shame. We heard it read earlier. All this pride, all this arrogance, all this talk of being the greatest nation in the world is going to turn to utter shame. And the pressing and trampling down of the poor will turn to their own trampling. We saw Israel's sin and now we, see, we saw their start and now we see Israel's shame. He goes on to say that the fastest among them cannot escape. No one, no military tools, no amount of bravery, nothing can stop them from God's judgment. One preacher gave this modern day comparison. He said, Navy SEALs will cry for their mommies in the fetal position. Or like the strongest among them, those that you would look to to maybe save you, they're going to turn and run. No number of nuclear weapons or fighter jets or chemical warfare can save from the judgment of God. And the thing that I want you to see that sometimes we miss because we don't understand and honor shame culture, the thing that stands would have stood out to the original readers and what stands out to us is the embarrassment and the shame. This is why there's language of them running away and cowering. Remember the root of all this oppression and the apathy was pride and arrogance. And pride coupled with power is a dangerous combo that oppresses and tramples the vulnerable and God deals with it and he shows them the exact opposite of their pride, and says, let me let you eat the fruit of your own self-reliance and self-dependence, which is utter shame. We see it most fully typified in the last verse of our text today. Look at verse 16. He who is stout of heart among the mighty, so not just the mighty, but the stout of heart among the mighty, the best of the best, shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This language would have been utterly shameful, not just fleeing, but fleeing away naked. See, God wanted to make it clear for them and us that 
trust or confidence or boast in anything else but God will lead to utter shame and destruction. And by His grace, through the words of the prophet Amos, is telling Israel and us, He's showing us the end of our own self-reliance. That our desires to build our own kingdoms at the expense of everyone around us will lead to our own destruction and ruin. And even though it's painful because he's dealing with our sin and rooting it out of our hearts, he wants us to see it very clearly. Like there's no question that this is utter destruction, right? Look at Psalm 33. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. And as the church, I'm guessing for us, we're not placing our hope in war horses or chariots, but we might find ourselves trusting political power. We might take boasts in our buildings, maybe our attendance numbers, Maybe who we cast our vote for, maybe our doctrinal purity, our tithing record, like any number of things. And, and let me say, like, I get it. Like, I find myself looking at other things and finding my boast or my value in them instead of the cross of Christ. And when that happens is when I treat other people the most poorly. I need Jesus as much as anyone. Like, I'll wrestle with how successful is this church plant going to be, right? How are people going to view me in the community, Right? How well is my child going to do in sports and I'm going to get respect from the community based on something stupid like a game? But I'll find myself going there. And the reality is all these things without dependence on God mean nothing. They lead to utter destruction. And not only that, they lead to the active and passive oppression of the most vulnerable among us. The moment we start boasting or trusting in those things is when this church becomes a place that is no longer safe for the hurting when we care more about looking good and our outward-facing image than being conformed to the image of our King and Savior Jesus, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's the good news and the hope. See, as bad as Israel was and as bad as we are at times in trusting ourselves, there was a true Israel who trusted his Father perfectly even unto death. And that's the last thing we see is true Israel's salvation. See, in the great exchange, the true and better Israel, Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of the Father. See, our shame and our hopelessness when we're brought to that place, it can put us in that fetal position to cry out for help, but it can't change us. It can't bring life from death. It can't transform us. Only the goodness of God revealed in the face of Jesus can do that. And when we see that, that's what leads us to heart-level, honest repentance, when we see what Jesus did in the cross and resurrection and the power of the gospel, we're led to change and true repentance. It's the only thing that has power to do that, that Jesus walked into the dirty, messy results of this destruction and our sin and our shame. I mean, he was the truly righteous one, the only truly righteous one who was sold for silver. He was the, the truly rich one who left heaven's throne to bear a crown of thorns and become a homeless man who had nowhere to lay his head and eventually was trampled and laid in the dirt dead. Yes, we profaned and abused his holy name and his holy temple, but he allowed himself as the true temple to be profaned and abused to redeem us and his garments were unjustly taken, not as a pledge for his own debt, but to free us from ours. His blood was poured out on a cross of wood as he took on our transgressions, 
and he walked this path. If you remember, and he drank this cup of the Father's wrath, everyone around him fled, including his closest disciples, his boldest, stout of heart ones, Peter, I'll go with you to the end. And he's standing there denying Christ, and he's left all alone. They couldn't bear the weight, and so they fled in fear and shame. The gospel writer Mark tells us this random one-line story of this one follower of Jesus who was so scared that he left his garment and fled away naked. And it reminds us of this reference in Amos. But through all that, Jesus set his face like a flint and remained out of heart. He was the only one who could drink the cup of the Father's wrath and be trampled upon and not be utterly destroyed. He was the only one who could take the full brunt of evil's blow and come out the other side, not be pressed down and destroyed. And he did it on our behalf. And on the cross, if you remember, he was stripped naked as he bore our shame. But unlike the soldiers of Israel in our text today who were told could not save themselves in the face of judgment, he did save himself. Even as they mocked him, save yourself, and little did they know he wasn't only saving himself as he allowed himself to be crucified, he was saving the entire world, he was saving you and I, and he would raise from the grave three days later. And he took on all of our injustices and all of our heinous crimes against him and against each other. And in exchange for that, he gives us his perfect righteousness. We don't deserve it. And when we see that, when we see the beauty and goodness of God, it leads us to repentance. And instead of wallowing in shame when our sin is pointed out, we experience what Paul calls godly sorrow. And we see the goodness of God, and we don't stay in our shame. We repent and trust the Spirit to bring us to a place of confidence in Jesus where our only boast is in Him. When we see and realize that we were once the neediest among us, and Jesus didn't pass by the cross, Jesus didn't pass by our mess, and when we get that, we begin to see others that way. And we don't just see, we act we begin to actually be like Jesus to the world around us and point people to him. And we see it as God's grace when we're made aware of injustice, even when it's painful because maybe we've been complicit. We see that, man, praise God for showing that to us. Now we can deal with that. We begin as a church, as like minuscule as it may seem, this just group of people, we become the light of the world, the city on a hill. And all the while we remain humble. Because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus from beginning to end. That's our prayer for New Eden Church. And, and let me say, like, I know it's hard. I know it's complicated. Like, I don't have all the answers. And, like, by no means am I saying that we're all going to agree on practical solutions for things like fighting hunger and racism and sexism and abuse and child trafficking, all these things. Like, it's complicated. But we humbly engage and we're willing to wait in the mess because... We know the gospel of Jesus is enough to sustain us. If it wasn't for that, like, I wouldn't be involved in this. Like I said a couple weeks ago, this isn't a fad. Fighting injustice isn't a fad because it's popular right now, whatever that even means. It's not some good idea. It's not just hopping on the bandwagon of the cultural hot topic of the day. Like, this is a robust, spirit-fueled, Jesus-centered, father-glorifying pursuit of biblical justice in the here and now so that worship might expand for eternity. And guess what? The reason we can do it is because Jesus is going to come back one day on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to enact justice once and for all. So we don't have to figure it all out and get it right. Praise God. And the way he enacts justice is by giving up his life so we do the same in the meantime. 
And that's our prayer. May the name of Jesus be honored and glorified through this church family.